0: into your word and uh, allow your Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us, and to guide us. And we just just pray for that right now. Thank you that we've been been able to worship you uh, so truthfully. And God, I just pray that that would continue, God, as we learn from what you have to say. God, please, we ask Spirit to penetrate our hearts this morning with your word, with this living and active word, that we might become more and more like Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you are probably aware of Nike's new ad uh, campaign that features former uh, quarterback of the 49ers, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, the TV, if you, how many of you have seen the commercial on TV? Anybody seen this? Wow, not many have seen the commercial. Um, well, the TV commercial, what it does, it, it features uh, different types of athletes. Some are, a few of them are prominent athletes, but many of them are unknown. Some of them even have disabilities and different things like that. But the main tagline of this campaign is believe in believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. As you see there, the picture, that, that billboard is up all over different places and uh, things like that. Like, So really, I think the, really the number one, one, there's a number of things that I've, I've watched this, this week. This, this ad just kind of came to me as I was thinking about this sermon. So I've watched this commercial uh, over and over and over again. And really, you can get a whole bunch of different things from this uh, commercial, really some profound messages that are in it. One is that I really felt like is, especially as an athlete, your dream should be so So big, really, that you're willing to uh, sacrifice, it should be so huge that you're willing to sap- sacrifice enormous things for it. You're willing uh, to do whatever it takes to achieve that. Now, now I know that there's considerable controversy around this campaign ad, and we're not going to go there uh, this morning. So I know that that is surrounds us. But really, the reason I bring this up is because it really, what it does, is it makes me think about really what we've been studying in Matthew and as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And really remember we've been talking about this the perspective that we are to have when it comes to living as citizens of heaven. What is what should that perspective look like? Okay? Now, as I mentioned last week, we've moved into this new section of Jesus's life and ministry where what he's doing is continuing to significantly raise the bar for his disciples and therefore us also, our understanding of what it means to truly live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, to know what it means to live with God reigning and ruling in our lives as we submit to his authority. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's raising the bar for what people think the kingdom of heaven should look like And really in his efforts, we've looked at to do this We've really seen that he's taken this high and lofty standard of kingdom living And he's applied it to some pretty interesting things already Remember he's addressed, we talked about confronting our fellow brothers and sisters When we believe that they are, uh, have strayed into sin We talked about forgiving uh, the sin or things that people have deeply hurt us And how we do that and how we forgive again and again again and again. We talked about the kingdom standard. Last week, we talked about the kingdom standard for marriage and for singleness. Remember that? And we, when we, and the, and we were talking about divorce. Now, really, all of these things require a willingness to sacrifice or to surrender our self-rule. Okay? They, we know that. As, I, I, if the Spirit spoke to you at all during these last few sermons, you said sense that, okay, I got to get off the throne here. That's what the message is of how to understand what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's talked about all these things, and he's not done. Jesus is not done. He's just going to keep on mowing along. And today, he hits another one that I think it really hits all of us. You see, Jesus takes time to address all these issues because he knows how easy that it is for us to fall into this trap of, of slowly and really oftentimes inconspicuously allowing the standard of how we believe or well we think we should be living as followers of Jesus or, and what happens is a lot of times when we talked about how oftentimes the standard that we as believers think that we should be living as, as, as as followers of Jesus is just a little bit better, a little bit higher than the world. Oftentimes it mirrors the world, but oftentimes we believe that it's going to be close. It just has to be close. We're as long as we're a little bit better. But we've learned that that's just not the way Jesus is explaining the kingdom of heaven. They're not close. They're nowhere near close. And they're impossible, it's impossible to live without the power of God doing this in your life. So I believe that what Jesus is doing, he's spending a large chunk of time teaching on the high and lofty standard of the kingdom of heaven for really for two reasons. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but I've kind of boiled this down in mind, two reasons. First is that when we lower our standard for how God expects us to think and how he expects us to live as citizens of heaven, really what we do is we fail to give those around us an accurate picture of what a true follower of Jesus really is. Really, one of the reasons, I, I really firmly believe that one of the reasons that many of our unbelieving friends don't really understand what it means or what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, to be a follower of Jesus, is because so many of us had lowered our standard for kingdom living. We've brought it down to a level that's comfortable for us. And reality is they really don't see a whole lot of difference. They say, "Okay, you're good," and you say some really good things. But when I look at your life and I look at the life everybody else, there's just not a lot difference. And really, I believe that is happening because we have lowered, because our flesh does that, lowered the standard. Like I said, we're here, worlds here. As long we stay a little, we we wherever they go, we just stay a little bit higher. No wonder people don't understand. No Wonder people don't look at us and go, "Wow, what a difference!" What a difference in your life. You're going through all that and you still have joy. You're going through all that and you still have contentment. You still have peace. You were able to forgive so-and-so for that incredible thing they did. What? Tell me about that. Explain that to me. This is what Jesus is trying to help us to do. He's trying to help us to get there. The second reason I believe that Jesus takes this time to address these issues is that when we lower our standard of how God expects us to live as king, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, really without even knowing it, I think this is the important part. Without even knowing it, we rob ourselves of experiencing the overwhelming joy and contentment, the peace, everything that goes along with being in the kingdom. We miss out. It's almost like we're, we're not firing on all cylinders, those of you that are car people. It's like we just, we're not getting every, I don't want to say it this way, but I guess I can. We're not getting everything out of it that we should be. The joy, all that comes with being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven whose rule is the God of the universe. So when we lower our standard, we're doing it because we think, okay, this is what I need to do to live. This is what I need to do to live to be happy and content. But the reality is we're jipping we're ourselves out of all that God has for us. So that's why Jesus is doing this. That's why he's spending his time raising the bar. These passages we have been studying are meant to challenge our understanding of what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And they're not just meant to like, whoa, look what you're not doing. They're meant to encourage us. These passages are meant to encourage us to lean into God and to challenge us to be able to lean into God for the strength to be able to do this, to live at the standard that he demands and to enjoy the blessings and everything that goes along with that. So we shouldn't see these things and go, oh, I can't live up to that standard because we can't. It's not possible on our own. But that's the whole idea of the kingdom of heaven. He's telling you to help us lean into me more, lean into God for that to be able to do this, so this morning we're going to see how Jesus really elevates once again the standard of the kingdom by challenging us to be to live this high and lofty standard in the kingdom. He's caused us to that is so valuable, this kingdom that is so worth so much that we're willing to sacrifice or surrender the very thing that we value the most. The very one of the things especially that we value. The most. Let's get started as we jump in, okay? Let's start by looking at, cha- we're in chapter 19 of Matthew. We're, let's just look at the chapter 13, 14, and 15 to start off with. It says this then, chil- then children were brought to him, Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for, so, for, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So here we are. No surprise that Jesus is surrounded by kids. He was probably a kid magnet, I would, I would imagine, back then. Uh, remember, back in chapter 18... He even took a child and grabbed a child and used a child as an example, remember? As an example of childlike humility that is to characterize the kingdom of heaven. Humility that's simple, it's trusting, it's helpless, it's not full of pride. So Jesus is all about kids. He's all about because he understands that, man, if everybody can understand what's going on in their life and in their mind, boy, and apply it to their life, Why they're going to get my kingdom so much more. Remember, Jesus said this. He even said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. And remember, this was a huge thing for, for him, so, for him to say. Because remember, so these children all being brought to Jesus, you know. They're being brought to him because parents wanted him, them to, him to lay their hands on them and bless them, which was a very common thing for parents to do back then, to have their kids blessed and prayed for by someone that they considered uh, a holy man or a holy person. But remember, we talked about this in terms of status. In the ancient world, children were like at the bottom, they're at the bottom of the barrel, barely tolerated. I mean, their parents liked them and everything, but everybody else, no, these are kids. We are just not into them. So seeming to believe that Jesus really has no time for this, Jesus has not have time for this. The disciples start rebuking the people. They say, wait, no, 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 no. He's got, he's got better, he's got better things to do. Okay. And Jesus tells them, don't do that let them come to me. Don't don't keep them from coming. Let let them come for me. Once again, what Jesus is doing by doing that, he's not just trying to get them to, okay, stop being annoying. He's trying to help the disciples. He's elevating their understanding of the kingdom of heaven, understanding the principles, the values of the kingdom of heaven. This is where they are. See this kid that you've put on the bottom? The kid, the children that you put on the bottom rung, I'm putting them up here, okay? This is the value of the kingdom this childlike mindset, okay? So G- Jesus does that. He spends time with them. He prays with them. And after that, he leaves. And then all of a sudden, we see this. We see that this guy comes along. He really, And this guy seems to be really a promising candidate for the kingdom of heaven. Really, he's got a lot, especially what society would say, wow, yeah, this guy seems to be, even if people that have been around Jesus would think, this guy seems to, to have what it takes, So he approaches Jesus with a question, and really this question, Jesus is going to use this to once again elevate and to raise the bar in this conventional understanding of the standards and the values of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So right off the bat, we see here from his question, the problem. We see from the question that he's asking, the very problem with this man's view of salvation. Okay, He assumes that salvation or attaining eternal life is somehow ensured by what? Doing something good. What good deed? What, mu- what good thing must I do? Sounds like a familiar mindset in our society today, doesn't it? It's not that far off that a person can earn God's favor, that ultimately um, our standing with God is, go- is going to be a result of how good I am. He'll, God will balance out the good and the bad, and I've been a pretty good person, so God will look at that, you know? That's the way he's going to look at it, instead of basing it completely on God's grace. That's how the world, that's how the world, that's how the world see it, sees it. And really this mindset, just to give you a little history lesson here, actually has its roots in what's called Pelagianism, okay? Pelagius was this monk that lived uh, in the late 300s. Uh, so, and basically in a nutshell, what he taught was that Adam's sin was only his own sin. When Adam rebelled and disobeyed God, it was just him. And it, did, and it wasn't passed down to anybody else. Okay, he taught that all people started off good. See that little baby? Perfectly innocent. That's how we start off. Totally free from sin. Okay, clean slate. That all people are basically good. That all sin is a result of this conscious choice that we make to do either bad or to do good. And basically, he taught that everybody has the ability to freely choose whether they're going to do good or whether they're going to be do bad. Now we know that this is false. We know this is not the case. Just an example, Romans chapter 5, I grabbed a couple of verses here. The apostle Paul tells us that when Adam sinned, sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Yes, Adam's one, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. I really believe it's safe for us to say that Pelagianism is alive and well today. It is alive and well. You talk, I mean, you talk to most people, and they will tell you that they believe that most people are probably are pretty good. Don't you say, well, have you ever had that? People will say, yeah, I would, I would say, given, if I balance it out, most people are, are good. Most people are basically good. And in the end, probably what's going to happen is God's going to see that basic desire that they tried to be really good. And he's going to say, ah, come on in here. Give me a noogie. You know, he's going to be all good with it. And everything is going to be, so, be all, all fine. But we know that according to scripture, that is just not true. It sounds like a nice little fairy tale. It's very feel good, isn't it? Happy little ending. But we know that that is not the truth. We know that. So what Jesus is doing here, he raises the bar for this man as to what it means to be good according to the standard of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, see what he's doing? He's taking him right up there and by telling him that there's only one who is good. There's only one. And in Mark's gospel, he says it this way, no one is good except God alone. Get this whole idea out of your head that you can do anything good or that you are good? Because there's nobody good except God. According to one commentator, he says what he is doing is highlighting the unique goodness of God in the hope that this man will recognize that the only way to obtain eternal life is to be utterly reliant not upon sinful self, but upon a good and gracious God. So see what Jesus is doing. He's taking all the emphasis off of him, what he can do, what humanity can do, and elevating the kingdom of God, elevating God's standard for what is good by saying there's only one that's good. Only one. Now, Jesus goes on to test this man's uh, perception of his own goodness by using, uh, we're going to see how he uses the Ten Commandments as a standard for his test. He tells them if he wants eternal life, if he wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must keep the commandments. That's what we see. He says there, you must keep the commandments. But look at verse 18 and 20. It says, and he, the man, said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these is kept. What do I lack? What's left? What's more? Now, here's the thing. Technically, there were a total of 613 commandments listed in the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. Yet it can be assumed really back then that the Ten Commandments really held a prominent place within uh, Jewish popularity because they really summed up um, the conventional Jewish view of what it meant to be a good person, or what it meant to do good. You do these, you are good. You see here, interesting enough though, what Jesus seems to only emphasize, how many of them? Five. He only takes five. He, takes, he only emphasizes five of them. And interesting enough, the five that he emphasizes here all have to do with observable behavior towards other people. You know, the other ones you can keep inside. I can say, yeah, yeah, I've, you know, I've made no idol, anything more important, I'm, you know, I've, you know, I don't take the Lord's name in vain or whatever, I, you know, you could, say, you could say certain things, but these are actions towards other people that anybody can see that really would prove more person's virtue and if they really are keeping these commandments. He's saying, okay, have you loved others to the standard of the kingdom of heaven. Have you really done it? Have you really loved others? And we can assume that this guy has, to the best of his ability, he's done that. Because Jesus tells him, he tells Jesus, ah, I've kept them all. Now, whether he did or not, we don't know. But I'm sure he assumed that he had done these. Yet, even with that, isn't it interesting, these verses? Even with the fact that he was able to answer Jesus and say, yeah, I've been so virtuous even those ones that you, meant, that you mentioned that are really hard and everybody would know, I've kept them. But look what, what, look what happens. You can see there's something deep down inside telling this guy that there's more. There's more. So he's like, okay, what more do I have to do? Because he knows it. He can tell there's more that has to be done. There's more to entering the kingdom of heaven than just doing good, okay? Than just merely keeping the commandments. He knows it deep down inside. There's something something gnawing at him. That there's got to be more than just doing my best to be good. You see, as deeply and earnestly as this man wanted to know the truth about what it meant to be saved and what it really meant to be into the, into the kingdom, the reality is this man was enslaved to something that kept him from being able to live according to that high and lofty standard of the kingdom. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that there's something going on. That's why he takes these high ones, these ones that are really affect other people, and he goes, okay, you've done that. But now he's going to show him how high and lofty the standard of the kingdom of heaven really is. Now he's really, the bar went up, now it's really going to go up. Look what he says in verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this word, just so you know, this word perfect doesn't mean to be like picture perfect, flawless, morally flawless. It really has more of a connotation of, of completeness or being mature, of full maturity. So Jesus is telling this guy, listen, if you want to Truly be completely and fully mature in your understanding concerning what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, you must exceed the standard of spiritual exercise of merely just keeping the Ten Commandments. He must come to recognize that there's one thing that he lacks. And really, we can take it back to that first couple of verses we looked at. He lacks Childlike dependence on God. He's dependent on something else. And Jesus challenges him here. He gives him an opportunity to have that childlike dependence on God by giving him an option. He says, get rid of all this, this things that are enslaving you. Get rid of it. Get rid of what it says. He tells him to sell his possessions and give them to the poor. And follow Jesus. Now, not because simply getting rid of, rid of possession possessions earns your salvation and God's favor. Once again, Pelagianism, that's what that would say. You want to be virtuous and you want God to look good at you? Man, give stuff away, then Ooh, even when it hurts, give it away. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying it because just to earn God's favor, but because God Jesus knew that he, this man, trusted more in his wealth to provide what he needed for security than in fully trusting God to provide what he needed for security. And this is the crux of the message, I believe. Is trusting, what do we trust in for security? And specifically in this area, Jesus is dealing with wealth and possessions. Now, I don't want to get into all the facts and all the figures. We are all smart enough to know that we are at the top 1% of the world. We know that. I mean, excluding Warren Buffett and all those guys, we are extremely wealthy. We have stuff. We have, we're doing okay. If we're living here, we're wealthy, extremely wealthy. Most of us would not see it that way, uh, but, but we are. So this is what's happening with this guy. This is what Jesus is noticing in this guy. He's trusting more in his wealth to provide what he needed for security. Say So sadly, we see that instead of doing what Jesus asks him to do, gives him an opportunity in, he goes away sorrowful. He's sad. He doesn't just go, oh, I can't do that. He's bummed. He is truly sad because he really wanted this. This is something that he wanted to achieve. He wanted in. He wouldn't have come to Jesus if he didn't. He really wanted, and he thought he was that close. There's got to be just maybe one more thing that lets me in. And Jesus says, okay, here's that one more thing. And he just, oh, crushed, absolutely crushes him. He just can't, he just can't imagine how hard it is. Because remember, this guy, what's happening is his buffer, his buffer of wealth and possessions has been the very thing that he's been relying on for his security. And it's so important to him. He can't give it up. I need that. I've got to have that. And so often we have so many things in our lives that we do that with, don't we? Whether it's things that are very unhealthy or things that seem healthy. But these are things that I've got to have this. I need this for security, to feel good, to feel okay. I need to have this. And some people, it's like I said, it's crazy things. I love watching the show. I shouldn't admit this. My wife said to me, I love watching Hoarders. Um, uh, Maybe it's because I studied that. Stuff and everything like that, but I really get interested. It makes me sad and sorrowful because I really think about the, what the pain they're going But so oftentimes, I think I was watching one episode, and a psychologist on there said that we can't just tell these people, just get rid of your stuff. Just come in here, let's just clean out your stuff. Because really, what's happening, psychologically, this is a buffer for them. Okay? This is a comfort buffer for them to whatever is happening, however, the anxiety, the pain in life is affecting them. That's what's going on. They're not just horrible people because they're hoarding. It's how something is happening. It's their buffer. We all have a buffer. It might not be a house full of stuff like with a little aisle, but we all have a buffer. We all have something we look at and say that, 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 I need that. I rely on that. We might not admit it, but on a Sunday morning like this, my prayer for you is that as we are going through the rest of this, that you would pray that God would enlighten you to what that buffer might be. It could be some small thing, but our flesh is always going to want to rely on security for something and something other than God, always. So there's a good chance that there is something. All right, so um, now he just just takes this man, he he turns and uh, goes off, but Jesus decides and uses this as a very teachable moment. Okay? About the dangers that face those who trust in wealth and and possessions to provide what they need for security. Yet they also desire to be citizens. So here's the danger. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You want to be in the kingdom? But you also, wealth, possessions, things, are something you get your security from? Let's talk about that a little bit. Look what he says in verse 23 and 24. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Holy crud. That must have just absolutely blown them away to 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 hear what he is saying there. First, he's basically saying, listen, it's pretty difficult for a rich person to get into heaven. Then what he does, he, he uses this imagery that clearly says that a rich person can't. It's not possible. They can't. I mean, that's just crazy. How could a camel go through the eye of a needle? It's just not possible. I mean, like I said, this had to be a shocking statement for him. Because back in that time, wealth and possessions were really a sign or proof that God was looking favorably on you. That's how they saw it back then. You're wit, You're rich, you're wealthy, things are going well. Man, and we say that often too, don't we? God has really, what, blessed me. Don't we go there too? Oh, this is God's favor. Yeah, it's God's favor giving us, being able to joy. us. But that doesn't mean that we're out of favor with God when we don't have stuff and we don't have money. Not at all. That's not what he's saying here at all. It's had to be shocking to them. You see, we see, that, we see a lot of times that wealthy people as privileged people, don't we? Oh my gosh, they live in that big house. They got a lot of money. They got that big job. They are kind of like a privileged kind of person. But Jesus consistently saw the wealthy as underprivileged and their wealth as a hindrance or a roadblock to their spiritual growth. Consistently throughout the, new, throughout the Gospels, that's how Jesus saw wealth. He repeatedly used illustrations regarding the abundance of possessions to be, as one commentator I read said, as toxic to the soul. Toxic to the soul. Yet we also know that it's true that Jesus never categorically condemns wealth. He doesn't. Nowhere does he say, you can't be rich. He doesn't say that anywhere. And he doesn't, every rich person he came across, he didn't say, well, sell all your stuff and then follow me. He didn't do that. He only did it to this guy because he knew that this was his God. He knew that he was getting all his security from this. And if he was able to give this up and follow him, man, he'd be all in. All in. So, yeah, wealth is not condemned at all. Not a bit. The sobering truth that Jesus is vividly trying to communicate here with this whole camel and the eye of the needle thing here is reinforcing what he's already told us. Remember back in chapter six that if we serve or we are ruled by wealth or possessions, we cannot serve and be ruled by God. Not possible completely impossible. That's what Jesus is saying is, that's how powerful wealth and possessions can have on the natural man. That's what he's saying here. He's, he's saying, listen, you, they, they can't exist together. You can't rely on both of those for your comfort. You can't, I mean, you can't rely on both of those things for your security. You can't. You can have both, but you can't rely on both. You can't serve both. It's just not possible. Same commentator wrote this. I thought he just put it really well. Um, He says, Wealth often numbs our minds to the reality of the joys of heaven and the torments of hell. There is always something more on earth to buy or look forward to when one has wealth. Wealth often lures us into into believing that everything can be had for a price. In most cases, with wealth comes self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-importance, and self-security. Wealth has a way of ruling one's life, ruling one's time, ruling one's vocation, ruling one's commitments, and ruling one's concerns. Once again, Jesus did not condemn being wealthy. It's not the point. Not the point at all this is what he's talking about. This is what it can do to us. That's what he knows. The truth is that not having is that it's not having wealth and possessions that makes that is, is toxic for our soul like the other guy said. That's not what's toxic. Not the wealth and possessions. It's putting them or putting our trust to provide what we need. That's what he's saying. So with this, so now that he's really raised the bar, Jesus has totally raised the bar. He said, listen, I know that what your situation is. Your wealth is this thing that you're relying on for your security. And this guy went away. And now the, now the disciples are thinking, uh, what's going on here? Well, okay, wait a second. We got a question. We're, we're concerned about something. You said, you see, it seems like you're making it impossible here. Look what it says in verse 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus' radical comments on all this, remember what they thought, they were thinking, okay wait a second, these people are blessed by God, they're in God's favor. What are you you saying here? Uh, If the wealthy can't get in, if the very people that God seems to be having favor with can't get, get in, who's not excluded? I mean, how do we possibly get in? How is there hope for anyone? If the wealthy can't get in and everybody who, (laughs) this is our day and age too, if the wealthy can't get in and everybody else wants to be wealthy, (laughs) what chance is there? What hope is there? Who's eligible to be saved? And really, I believe Jesus looks right at him and goes, yes, now you get it. That is what I'm talking about. You're exactly right. Nobody has anything to offer that makes them eligible to enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how kind you are, doesn't matter how important you are, doesn't matter how much you sacrifice, you cannot earn it. That's what he is saying here. Jonathan Edwards once wrote this, I love this quote by him, Take on yourself to take on yourself to work out redemption is a great thing, is, is a greater thing than if you had taken up it upon you to create a world. <laughs> you are not allowed entrance into the kingdom of heaven because you are great, good, or wealthy. Entrance into the kingdom is a miracle of God's doing. And we know that. Most of us here, we, we know that. But so often we still try to earn God's favor. And now as if to really, in a sense, to put kind of a, a, a delicious icing on the cake here, what Jesus does now, he tells his disciples really what the results of surrendering everything for the sake of experiencing the fullness of, ke- of, of heaven is going to look like. Here's the result. Here's how this is going to play out. Here's our last section here. We're just going to do the whole thing. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last... And the last, first. So, Peter's like, okay, wait. Haven't we done what you talked about? Haven't we done this very thing? Haven't we left everything to follow you? Remember, these guys did. They left everything. Hey, pick up that, put that fishing pole aside. Come. Come. Leave it. These guys eat Tax collecting booth, leave it. Come follow me. Man, these, man, these guys did that very thing. He's saying... What's in the, what, what about us? What about us? We, sur- we surrendered everything. What, is, is our treasure in heaven? <laughs> is that where, is, is our, our, have we done what we should have done here? Is our treasure in heaven? And Jesus tells them, yes. You know what? You will be rewarded for surrendering everything in order to follow me. And, and by the way, he says, this is no small reward what you guys have done by sacrificing what you might've found your security in and giving it up in order to follow me, no small thing. So you know what? No small thing is what you are going, your reward going to be. He tells them that they will, I don't know how this all works, but somehow in the new heaven and the new earth, that's going to happen. The 12, these 12, they're going to rule with, with God somehow. So I mean, that's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. You are going to be part of ruling with God and with Jesus in heaven and this new heaven and earth. But then he goes on, Jesus goes on to make a promise to everybody who has given up security found in anything except for Jesus for the kingdom. What he basically says here is that, you know what? Far more is gained than was ever lost. Far more is gained than was ever lost. The truth is that no matter how much we surrender for the sake of the kingdom, what we get in return is far, far greater, far greater. So often I meet people all the time that are afraid. I can't give my finances or my time or my whatever, and we forget the fact that what we're doing is we're lowering the standard of living as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Might it be difficult? Might it be hard? Yes. But you know what? In return, oh my gosh. And I'm not talking about, you know, we're not health, wealth, prosperity here. We're not talking about, okay, you give that, automatically your income's going to go up. I'm not saying that. But all the richness that comes from experiencing the fullness of life in the kingdom of heaven as a citizen of kingdom of heaven, I can't even explain it but we know that God when he's raising the bar that means he's raising the bar for blessing for contentment for joy for peace for forgiveness amidst all the crud that we do we live through in life that's all going to be a part of it far far greater and it includes and he throws on top everlasting life on top of that living forever wow that is amazing amazing remember i shared a quote about a couple months ago that uh, I just added this this morning because it came into my head about Jim Elliott. Remember that quote that he says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Powerful, powerful words that really fit with what Jesus is saying here. Listen, you have no idea, is what he's saying, how amazing The blessing is, how amazing life here and there is going to be when we give up the things that we find security in, in order to truly follow Christ, to truly live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Get ready to basically say, get ready to have your mind blown. It's going to be mind boggling. See, there's no greater way to experience the fullness of the kingdom of kingdom living than surrendering everything we trust, trust in to provide security for the sake of following Jesus. I wanted to just put that up there because I thought, really, this is the crux of what he's saying here. This is the crux of it. There's no greater way, no greater way. It's impossible to experience the fullness of the kingdom, of kingdom living, than surrendering everything that we trust in to provide security for the sake of following Jesus. And is that easy? No. That is not easy. It's difficult. But we know God gives us the strength to be able to do that. Yet Jesus finishes, interesting that he says all this stuff, said Jesus finishes by telling his disciples that even though they've given up their security found in anything except Jesus, even though it's going to be rewarded, even though you're going to get stuff out of that, I love how Jesus always kind of brings our mindset right back to where it centers it. He puts it, he says, don't think for a minute that doing so gives you the right to run to the head of the line. Okay. Don't think for a minute, because you were so generous, because that was so difficult for you to give up that thing that you find security in. <gasps> wow, God, I am, that is awesome. I get, to, I get to kind of go to the front of the line of, of virtuous people within the kingdom of heaven. He said, no, 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 no. no. He said, do not do it in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody earns their status. Nobody earns status. It's by divine grace that we're rewarded. Even the disciples didn't earn that status. That was divine grace by God to say, you're going to get to rule. And it's the same thing that happens with us. So the question to all of us really is, are we, am I willing to sell everything and put Following Jesus and living by the high and lofty standard of the kingdom of heaven first. Are we willing to do that? Put it first, even if it means sacrificing the very things that we get security from. Are we willing to place the kingdom, the reign, and the rule of God in our lives? Are we willing to put it before self? Are we willing to put it before family, before career, before recognition, before, oh, here we go, comfort? Okay? Before pleasure. Before anything that we trust in for security. This is the question that Jesus is asking of every single one of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you once again for your word. Thank you that as we look at things that seem so challenging, I pray that even now for every one of us in this room that we would be seeing this as an opportunity for your Holy Spirit to really do some work in all of our lives, God. I just want to pray, Spirit, that you would be enlightening those of us that need to hear and need to see the area, the things that we are holding on to, and that things that that are giving us a sense of security, and we're putting those above following you completely, and we're not willing to let those go. Even those things, God, that we had no idea, I pray that you would go deep this morning. And this week, as your spirit brings back to recall these powerful words from our Savior, God, do a work in us that drives us closer and closer to you to trust you for the grace and for the strength and the power to be able to sacrifice and to surrender things that we know are keeping us from living at the standard of the kingdom that you desire for us and all that comes with that, with that, God. Help us to trust you for that. In Christ's name, amen.